Corporations equal political activists? A new Korea? How are extreme leftist radicals using corporate power to circumvent our constitutional and natural rights? Why is Disney defending child pornography? Recently, Francis drastically altered the Vatican Curia, the bureaucracy which helps the Pope govern the Church. Why? How is all this connected? This and much more is addressed by Brian McCall and Christopher Ferrara in the 13th episode of their series, Church and State. Welcome to another edition of Church and State with Christopher Ferrara and Brian McCall. It's nice to see you again, Chris. You too, Brian. Well, we have two interesting stories to talk about uh, today. And our first story is really sort of a pivot off or a sort of larger discussion that we'd like to have from this story that uh, was making a lot of headlines around the country this week. And that is that uh, Elon Musk, uh, kind of a, a mercurial character, kind of an interesting character, the richest man in the world, he bought 9.2% of Twitter. He found like $2.9 billion loose change in his, you know, pants pocket, I guess, and said, well, what better to do? Now, nothing for him. Right. What's interesting about it is it's raised lots of discussions because the Twitter company immediately put him on the board. And he has openly said he wants to use this to influence their totalitarian censorship. And again, you might think, why are we talking about this on this show? Well, here's why. One of the phenomenon that is part of what I, I referred to in many of my articles in Catholic Family News and, and the Remnant as America Inc. is that what's happened to the American legal and constitutional system for decades is the socialists and radicals have realized they can essentially turn some legal protections of the Constitution against us by using corporate power, by creating what political philosophers call this as an oligarchy. And an oligarchy is where the real political institutions don't rule, but an elite sort of group who control economic power essentially make the de facto laws. And what this thing raises is that for years, a lot of political activists, socialist radicals, have concentrated their power on mutual funds, on massing large amounts of stock in, in public companies. BlackRock's a great example. Chris, sure, where the president, current head of BlackRock, makes no bones about it. He says, I control major shares in public corporations, and I'm going to make them change behavior. I'm going to tell them what to do. Uh, and how do they do this is if they own large numbers of stock, shares of stock, all of the managers of the company, the way they get paid, at more or less, aside from their salary, is their, their big payouts are stock options. And if you control large blocks of stock, here's how the conversation goes in the boardroom. So you're going to do this, make this decision, right? Well, I don't think so. I don't think it's best for the shareholders. Well, if you don't, I'm going to start dumping my stock. Guess what that does to their stock options? They go down. They can't sell them. They lose money. And this is how liberals have taken over companies like Disney, another story, another company in the news, and Twitter, Facebook, all these. How are they? Because people who control blocks of stock, and it doesn't have to be that big, can, can manipulate and get the corporations to essentially not be businesses but be political activists and take away free speech rights, exercise of religion, things that were in the political sphere guaranteed by law. And so this story is sort of an interesting story of, I wouldn't say a conservative, because this guy Musk is, like I said, he's, he's an interesting character, but he is maybe striking back. 
maybe saying, wait, maybe we can play that game too. So with that, Chris, I mean, what do you think? Am I off on this? Or is this really, do you see that our Constitution has really been eroded? Again, it's got problems of its own, but it's really been eroded by essentially transferring power to corporations. Well, I'm thinking of a book by Joel Bakken. Yes. D-A-K-A-N, The Corporation, colon, The Pathological Pursuit of Profit <laughs> and Power. So Bakken's book shows how the modern multinational corporation fits all of the tick boxes for diagnosis of the psychopathic personality. So these corporations are remorseless, parasitic, rootless, amoral, totally lacking in empathy, and they become vehicles for what we're talking about here, which is the reordering of society along the lines of this radical Marxist agenda, the woke agenda in general, and now, of course, the attack on the existence of genders, which is basically the final stage of this long war on the created order, which is at the heart of the, all of the problems we're seeing in society today. And the corporation is the ideal instrument for doing this because the corporation can argue, well, I'm a private entity. This is a private corporation. It's not subject to the First Amendment because it's not a state actor. Now, the time has come, I think, and you've had indications of this from Justice Thomas, to look at these corporations as public utilities. Mm. Because they're not really just a private enterprise simpliciter, but they're so vast in scope and reach. When it comes to Facebook and Twitter, we're dealing with entities that are basically the marketplace of ideas. And so you can't really transact anything in terms of public opinion without the participation of these gargantuan entities. They are, in fact, like the telephone company. It's as if the telephone company were saying, well, we're not going to place any calls by conservatives. So your phone service is denied to us. Well, this is the equivalent of a phone service. Nobody uses the telephone anymore. They communicate through these social media gargantua. So the time's come to think about regulating them as public utilities. I don't see any way out of this other than to undo the Section 230 protection that these entities have because these are obviously publishers who dominate the public square. They're not just neutral platforms. And who a lot of the evidence shows out are actually, again, maybe even more overtly than we think, colluding with uh, totalitarian-minded people in the government, right, who are, again, information that's come out that Facebook, sorry, Facebook <laughs> and uh, Twitter were communicating with Fauciites in the federal government on what stories about the COVID situation and its origin should be censored, kept off, labeled as fake information. Again, in many ways, they, as you're pointing out, found these loopholes. So you're right, the government or the totalitarians can say, oh, yeah, you have the First Amendment. You can go down to your little local park and talk to people and say what you want. You have your First Amendment right. But you can't actually reach 80 million people on these platforms, which have become the new uh, digital sense, the new town square. Uh, but you can't look at us. The government's not doing it. We're just using our agents that we're cooperating with uh, who control these boards to tell them to, that, uh, to do these things. Well, you've touched on another theory, which is the cooperation between government entities yes. and these mega corporations. So it's possible to prove a theory of conspiracy mm. under the federal civil rights statute, 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, if you can show that the government is using these corporations as cat's paws to carry out government policy. 
So if you could show, for example, email traffic between Facebook, Twitter, and government officials in the White House, that this particular person or this particular point of view should be deplatformed or censored or shadow banned or whatever, then you could prove a Section 1983 conspiracy. And I think it's just a matter of time before someone maintains that suit and is successful in doing so. Uh, Mr. Berenson, you know, the one who's leading the charge against COVID disinformation, has just such a suit going mm. against Twitter on the theory that Twitter is taking orders from the government. So we'll see where that goes. I think I think he vented that suit in California. Alex Berenson is a fellow. I happen to follow his uh, email and his uh, blog posts on Substack, which is the alternative to Twitter, created for people who don't want to be censored. And uh, his suit just might be successful. Mm. We'll see. But sooner or later, I think these entities are going to be subjected to regulation if we have a Supreme Court on our side, of course, the most recent disturbing <laughs> is the uh, seating of Ketanji Jackson Brown yes. on the court by a vote of 53 to 47. So we're one vote away, as Ted Cruz has said, from losing fundamental rights. That's how yes. desperate the situation is. Well, one this is, a, again, shifting, to, I guess, to her story a little bit. Yes, shortly before we recorded this, she was confirmed by the Senate, which included three Republican votes. Uh, and this is a person that, as Ted Cruz has pointed out, would ask, what are natural rights? Said, I, I don't know what those are. <laughs> yeah. So, and what is a woman? Well, I'm what a biologist. I can't tell you. But then she answered at one point when pressed on the matter, well, I know that I'm a woman, but no one asked the follow-up question. Well, how do you know you're a woman? Right, if you don't know what a woman is. <laughs> well, and more troubling with her in this uh, this story is her record on dealing with people that have been convicted of child trafficking and child pornography. And now we uh, have she, the, these major corporations grooming children. Yes. Which gets us back to the original subject of yes. the wokeism of Disney Corporation, which wants to groom children for transgenderism and the gay lifestyle, so-called gay lifestyle. Uh, and these corporations have become instruments for social engineering. You mentioned something uh, in the uh, pre-appearance discussion in the green room, as we call it, <laughs> about a possible derivative shareholder action. Yeah. Maybe we should uh, put that out to the public now. What do you think? Yeah. Well, yes, exactly. I mean, I think this is the problem. So, again, people might listen to this and say, oh, Chris and Brian, they're, they're, against, they're against the free market. They're against, you know, they want to go to communism. Not at all. In criticizing the corporations, we're not criticizing freedom to live your economic life, to make – but to say what these corporations have become are not that. They are not – you know, your father who starts up a small business and gets going. No, they are essentially instrumentalities of political power as what they've become that are not even pursuing economic goals. And again, Chris mentions Disney in a great way. case. So what is this? This is a company whose market, whose brand, whose entire way of making money when founded was to provide wholesome entertainment that parents could say, okay, my children can do this because it's not going to, not going to poison their mind. Right. That's the original 1950s vision, and that's what they made billions of dollars out of. So if that's your business model, your business model would be, hey, I should be on the side of parents and children because they're who I sell my products to. But, again, in a proof that corporations are no longer, to use a term, free market or capitalists, they're instruments of wokeism and political theory, that the Disney direct, uh, management came out with a statement saying they were opposed to a law in Florida that contrary to the way it's been reported, is a parental rights law that says parents have a right to say you can't show pornographic sexual material 
to my children in kindergarten. You cannot teach them about anything to do with sexuality in kindergarten, first, second, third grade, because that's my right as a parent to protect my child. And Disney comes out saying, we're going to throw all of our resources behind getting this law repealed. It's almost as if McDonald's came out to say we're going to get hamburgers banned in the country. Uh, well, as you indicated in our discussion, they've uh, poisoned their own brand. Yes. They've inflicted enormous harm on the corporation with their woke nonsense. And so it's theoretically possible, actually more than theoretically possible, that a shareholder who's fed up with this could say, hey, you just de- devalued my shares. Yes. And I'm going to bring an action on behalf of myself and all similarly situated shareholders to get damages for your destruction of the brand. Right. That's what's involved here. They've ruined the brand. The Disney brand was a land of enchantment and innocence where children can frolic and uh, be free from malign influences. And that was the Disney brand. Uh, Wholesomeness and childlike innocence and little creatures like Mickey Mouse and uh, other things that are utterly inoffensive, supposedly. Although we have our issues with that whole vision of things. But at least it wasn't pornographic. Exactly. And now they, they, they come out in favor of subjecting little children to pornography. Yes. How is that not immensely damaging to the value of Disney shares? I haven't checked it, but I bet Disney shares plummeted in the aftermath of that announcement. Well, and again, the root of this is this conflating and use of what's supposed to be an economic enterprise to disguise political objectives. And again, is not to come to really a Catholic principle, not living up to one's duty of state, right? So duty of state, you don't do what you're supposed to do. If you were a, you know, a, a plumber and that was your job and you would need to be the best at that as you can do. Well, if you're a company that's supposed to be providing wholesome entertainment or a free speech public platform, then get back to doing the business of what you're supposed to be doing, not masquerading as a business that's really a socialist organization wanting to push a political agenda. And that's well, yeah, sort of- yeah, Backen's book makes some points about corporations that most people haven't really yes. considered, yes. which is that corporations, especially these hegemons, these multinationals, exercise far more control over your life than any governmental entity. Yes. They can destroy your livelihood. They can surveil you. They have their own police forces. Now they control the public square. Uh, they get away with things that government could never get away with. Yes. If the government tried to censor Donald Trump as government, even the uh, judge would set that aside, yes. let alone the United States Supreme Court. But these so-called private entities, which are actually quasi-governmental entities at this point, are getting away with constitutional murder. So it, it's high time that we re-examine the role of these corporate hegemons and treat them as what they are, especially in the area of communications, social communications. They have commandeered the public square in much the same way that telephone companies commandeer telephone communications. You can't communicate by telephone without the cooperation of the telephone company. That's why they're public utilities. That's why they have to provide access to all users. Well, these these entities in the social media realm are also – Public utilities, it's as clear as day that that's how they operate. And like a phone company, they have to allow access to everyone in all points of view. Now, a telephone company could refer you for criminal prosecution if you use the telephone to make a death threat. Right. You call someone up and say, I'm coming over to your house to chop you up with a machete. They can turn you over to law enforcement. That's okay. That makes sense. 
But the telephone company can say, we don't like your view on COVID-19 vaccines. So we're disconnecting your telephone service. That's exactly what Facebook is doing. Yes. What is really a public utility. So the answer is going to be, and Justice Thomas, as I mentioned earlier, has suggested this, that sooner or later, some court is going to say, maybe it'll happen in Florida, maybe it'll happen in Texas where they passed pertinent statutes on this issue, Hmm. that these entities will be regulated as public utilities and held to a good faith standard of access. Yes. Well, to wrap up the story to transition, it actually reminds me of a very interesting dystopian novel I read once, which sort of saw this trend and, and see where it goes. And in this sort of not-too-distant future, massive corporations are able to trademark every word in the English language. And you have to, you have to pay them. There's a little device that you pay them every time you want to speak for every word you use. It's a hyperbole, but it's sort of where we're headed if this doesn't get cut off. Well, they've already patented life. Life forms are now patentable. Yes. So, uh, you know, if their seed falls onto your land and sprouts plants, well, you owe them money. You owe them royalties. Yes. Yes. And that was a, I forget the name of the case. It was a 5-4 Supreme Court decision holding a genetically modified, a genetically modified organism can be patented. Uh, Monsanto's. Uh, it was a Monsanto yeah, case. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember the other. The full Very name. close decision. And uh, so now, you know, they own life. Yes. And so it's, it's really, it's really frightening. I just saw somebody who spoke at the World Economic Forum. What, what the heck's his name? Uh, some Dutch name. Well, actually, he's in, his, in, he's in Israeli. And his theme was very disturbing that the real ownership of value is going to be not money or anything else besides information. Yes. So these corporations will accumulate information, in particular information on biometrics, so that it will know what's going on, as he put it, underneath the skin of everyone. (laughs) So they'll monitor your internal workings, including your very thoughts, and through patented algorithms, they will be able to hack the human being and make the human being into something other than homo sapiens. And this lunatic said within a couple of of generations, perhaps 100 years, maybe at the outside 200 years, there will no longer be any Homo sapiens left. There'll be entirely new bioengineered species that will be transhumanist. It's entirely conceivable that if they hack the genome, they can create these chimeras, these uh, animal-human hybrids or bio-human hybrids, and in a sense there won't be Homo sapiens anymore for the rich. I mean, you mentioned the oligarchy. The oligarchs are ruling, but it's really also a plutocracy. Government yes. by the wealthy and not a yes. lot of wealthy people. A handful of people are running the world right now. Twitter. No, you're, oh you're, yes. <laughs> no, you're right. I, I saw the same guy. He's very creepy. And all I could think of for those who've seen Star Trek, the next generation, you will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but very creepy guy. Yeah, well, they're, they're surveilling you whether you want to be surveilled or not. Yes. Everything you buy is being used to create databases that track your every every move, your every preference, and he says that sooner or later the internal workings of your body and your brain itself will be tracked. Yes. Well, transitioning from one massive corporate entity to another, we'll maybe turn take a brief look in the last 10 minutes at the church. Uh, and interestingly, on March 19th, right after the Pope announced the consecration of Russia that drew everyone's attention to that, rightfully, uh, the consecration that he did on the March 25th, he, he, on a Saturday, slipped out a little thing 
it was a major document reworking the entire curia, the entire bureaucratic apparatus of the Vatican, the instrumentality through which the Pope governs the universal church. And again, I find it a little interesting. I'm not so sure it was not, it was just a coincidence that while everybody was distracted, this bombshell came out. Now, very clearly, the Pope has been given the ultimate supreme authority to govern the church, and it is up to the Pope to decide, you know, how to do that. Our Lord did not leave us kind of an operating manual for how to run the day-to-day affairs of the church. He gave us the truths to teach, the moral principles, the divine constitution of the church, but the constitution. When it came down to the details, he left it to the Pope. So no one's disputing Pope Francis has the authority to make decisions about how the government of the church functions on a, a functionary level. However, major changes to it do underlie often serious concerns. So as we've, we've talked about and, and I've written and we've both written about, one of the, the last major overhaul of this was Paul VI after Vatican II, in which he took the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, formerly known as the Holy Office, which is the doctrinal uh, head. Everything about it is preserving the purity of the doctrine, and all the government of the church was subject to it. So everything that had to be decided by the Pope had to pass through the lens of the truth, the faith. And he took that and he replaced it with the Secretary of State so that everything had to filter through diplomacy. And that change, although, again, you can move offices around, talks about a really a radical change in thinking about the purpose of government of the church. So Pope Francis hasn't reversed that. That would probably be a good change. Let's get doctrine on top of political diplomacy. But what he did in his introduction to this this massive document, said that the whole principle of all these dicasteries, so he's made everything a dicastery, is they must be oriented to and ruled by evangelization. Everything must be directed with the goal of evangelization, spreading the, the, the new evangelization, spreading the new words around the world. So what do you think is is sort of troubling about orienting all your decisions towards the new evangelizations? Well, let's begin with the phrase itself, which is utterly meaningless. <laughs> I mean, the new, new evangelization, as far as we can see, in practice means no evangelization. Right. <laughs> I'm okay, you're okay. That's the new evangelization. There is no call to conversion. There's certainly no indication any longer from the highest authorities in the church, or even from most bishops, that belonging to the Catholic Church is in any way necessary for salvation. So where is the evangelization? It's not happening any longer. Uh, someone spoke, I forget who it was, was a commentator uh, in Rome about the demissionization of the church. Mm. And Cardinal Ratzinger, in a speech he gave in Dallas in 1991, spoke of this idea of conscience being your salvation. If you have a, a conscientious position that you've taken which leaves you outside of the church. Well, that's okay, because that's what your conscience tells you. And Ratzinger said, this is disastrous, because what it really means is, if you inform somebody's conscience about the necessity of belonging to the Catholic Church, all you've really done is burden him. You should have left him alone. The ordinary means of salvation would be not being a Catholic. And to inform someone of the imperatives of membership in the church is to place a needless burden on that person. And he says, this is crippled evangelization. And this is what the new evangelization is all about, not evangelizing. Right. So that's the most troubling aspect of subsuming everything to the new evangelization. But there's something else, Brian, when, when it comes to the former holy office, which is now the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, this reform, yes. as I understand it, eliminates congregations and reduces everything to a dicastery. And all of the departments are on the same level, and all of them are under Francis. 
so that when it comes to a pronouncement by Francis, someone observed that if it's a doctrinal pronouncement, Francis being in charge of everything now and very dicastery will essentially be checking his own doctrinal pronouncements right, right. with himself. To make sure they're orthodox. Right. So, so there's no longer a break on Francis from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is now just a dicastery. But curiously enough, there's still a Secretariat of State. Yes. The Secretariat of State is not reduced to a mere department or dicastery. It retains its organizational preeminence, which resulted from the reform of Cardinal Vuillot after the Council. And so that entity, the Secretary of State, continues to operate the church along political lines in terms of diplomacy and outreach to the world. Someone in Rome, this person was nameless, said it's very dispiriting when it comes to the question of immigration to see how the church has betrayed Catholic countries and is now operating as basically a non-governmental organization for the Islamicization of Europe. (laughs) And this is largely an operation of the Vatican Secretary of State. Yes. No, you're right. That change, again, people might think what, what decaster was, I mean, it's just a word, but it, the word and the change of wording indicates a change of status. Right. And rather than having a, an authority, again, all authority derives from the Pope as the, the principle, the base of that authority, but they having an independent authority of their own, now just being reduced to sort of like a functionary underneath the Pope, which is all oriented to evangelization. And again, I agree with Chris, that no evangelization is not only no evangelization, it's, by the way, here's a crude truth of the Catholic faith. Oh, I don't agree with that. Ah, you know what? Forget about that. Here's another one. Do you like this one? We can give you this one, right? Is what it's turned into. Just talk about what people, people want to hear. Now, one other, again, and what was a little odd about this, the law of the church, the official language of the church is Latin. This decree came out in Italian. And right. so far, there's been no Latin or actually even other uh, language translation, which is just a little odd. But to note that, so we're, we're sort of relying on uh, what, what should be a translation of the real law, because the real law is in Latin. But one of the things that came out of it is the Pope said, from now on, the heads of these dicasteries, the people in charge, don't even have to be clerics anymore. And in fact, can be lay people and lay women. So we could have Mrs. Margie Smith as the head of the dicastery for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith under this law. And again, I'm not saying that'll happen tomorrow. But that's that's now what he has provided for. Well, there's a saving clause in there about how any baptized person can be the head of a dicastery. Yes. Uh, with due provision for the power of governance. So that if it's a question of governance, uh, you could argue that women will not be placed in positions of authority over those who exercise governance in the church, namely priests and bishops. Right. Because they have the power of binding and loosing. So you can't have women dictating to uh, seminaries who will be ordained, and you can't have women making final decisions on doctrinal matters because that involves the power of governance in terms of uh, the integrity of the doctrines of the faith. So we'll see how that plays out in practice. But we can be certain that wherever women can be put in, in charge of something, they will be put in charge of something. Well, but again, though, this is Francis' technique. To do something radical, put a footnote in that says, oh, by the way, this is limiting what I'm saying, and then Im- immediately ignore that and go ahead and, uh, you know, do the radical thing as it appeared. Uh, so, yeah, again, we'll see. Uh, there, was, there was a great uh, legal scholar, Harold Berman, of the last century from Harvard, who wrote a book on law and revolution. And an interesting point he made is that whenever there's been a major revolution in history, a complete changing of thought, 
that it all, for it to last, it had to be implemented in law. That the way to make radical revolutions stick is to implement them in law. And in many ways, that's why John Paul II had to completely rewrite the common, the law of the church, the canon law of the church in 1983. And why I think Francis, because he's told us from Evangelium Gaudium, he wants to remake the entire church, everything. So this had to be done to facilitate his goals. So to understand these changes, you have to go back to Evangelium Gaudium and say, how does this advance his goal of, of remaking the church? Well, not as he puts it, not a new church, but a different church. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Another meaningless slogan. But, yeah, the enshrinement in law is critical. That also applies to the recent attempt to suppress the Latin mass in Traditionis yes. Custodis, which really, uh, when you look at the responsa of the Congregation for Divine Worship, which now I suppose is a dicastery, I don't know, I haven't checked. But yeah. when you look at their responsa, they don't have the force of law. And what do we see but something that followed a private audience between the Pope and two members of the priestly fraternity, they spent some time with the Pope basically to use a uh, vernacular term, schmoozed him for a little <laughs> while, and he just issues a decree saying, oh, the fraternity is not subject to any of this, which just shows that none of this really has had the force of law. So now if the fraternity is not subject to these attempts to suppress the Latin liturgy and the traditional books, the, the pontifical mm-hmm. uh, and the ritual, if those books are still in use by the fraternity by a written decree of the Pope, that applies to all the other traditionalist orders. So in the end, this may come to nothing precisely because it never really was enshrined as the law of the church. Yes. And this is what Father Gruner was always insisting upon, that everything yes. that has been visited upon the church since Vatican II has the appearance of the command, but not the reality mm-hmm. of the command. Yes. So with the suppression of the Latin mass, that was the appearance of legal dictate. But as Cardinal Ratzinger, as Pope Benedict XVI, finally revealed 40 years too late, uh, it was never juridically, Latin mass was never juridically abrogated. Never juridically, meaning as a matter of law, right. abrogated or abolished. Something that and Father had in these responsa, yeah. uh, the rituali and the pontifical, oh, those were abrogated. You can't say that. In yes. answer to somebody's question, that's not yes. the law of the church. No, and you're right. Father Gruner maintained that his whole life, even before 2007, and yet he was proven right by, by Benedict. There's uh, a definitely. book that, uh, that I had a part in called The Great Facade, <laughs> the theme of which is this is all just a facade of novelties, not a single one of which is actually been has actually been imposed as an obligation of the faith upon the universe. Absolutely right. Well, and before we wrap up, a little humorous nugget out of this story uh, that sort of shows how the nature of this whole thing, as you're mentioning. So at the press conference, when they were introducing this thing, uh, one of the reporters read it and actually said, I'm a little confused. When you describe the duties of the, con- the dicastery for divine worship, it says to regulate the extraordinary form of the Roman rite. <laughs> I thought Pope Francis got rid of that. And all you can see is they're all going, oh, 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 oh. oh we're going to change that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, these are just, it just <laughs> verbal manipulations. Yes. Yes. Yeah, but no actual legal change. And there's, there's no way that you can get rid of the traditional receive and approve rite of mass in, in the Western church. It isn't going to happen. And this is, we always end on the same note. In the end, this is not a political struggle when you're talking about the church as opposed yes. to the state. The Holy Ghost is involved. And we can see the Holy Ghost operating even through this pontificate. 
as we have seen with the meeting with a couple of members of the fraternity, in which the Pope was induced to issue a decree saying, oh, this doesn't apply to you, it doesn't apply to any of the traditionalist orders. So basically much of what Traditionalist Custodis purports to do has already been undone. And in the end, we can hope that it will just come to nothing. Yep. Precisely because it's not the law of the church. Well, there you have it again. We tend to end on that note. Let's uh, hope and pray that that, uh, that day will come. Thank you for joining us, and God willing, we'll see you uh, after the Easter celebrations in a couple of weeks to take account of matters of church and state. Yep. Enjoy your Easter. We'll do that. All right. Thanks, see you next time. Till the next time. This presentation has been brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. For more resources regarding the Catholic faith and the message of Fatima, and to support this vital apostolate with a donation, please visit our website, Fatima.org, or call us at 1-800-263-8160. Our Lady of the Rosary, Ora Pronobis.